The scripture reading this morning is from the book of Isaiah, chapter 60, verses 1 through 6. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the people's. But the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will appear over you. Nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your dawn. Lift up your eyes and look around. They all gather together. They come to you. Your sons shall come from far away, and your daughters shall be carried on their nurses' arms. Then you shall see and be radiant, and your heart shall thrill and rejoice, because the abundance of the sea shall be brought to you, and the wealth of the nations shall come to you. A multitude of camels shall cover you, the young camels of Midian and Ephah, all those from Sheba shall come. They shall bring gold and frankincense and shall proclaim the praise of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. In the time of King Herod, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, asking, Where is the child who has been born King of the Jews? For we have observed his star and its rising, and we've come to pay him homage. When King Herod heard this, he was frightened, and all of Jerusalem with him. You know how the story goes. Uh, because he cannot find the one child, the king, the Messiah, the anointed one, because he cannot find that one who's come to save rather than harm, old Herod, insecure as he is, has all the children born in that time frame eliminated. In spite of his bluster, Herod is shaking in his boots. God, my friends, is always a threat to the workings of this world. Always. Love flies in the face of hate. Mercy and justice always undermine control and advantage that the powerful use. So who can blame Mary and Joseph if they take a side trip down to Egypt? That place that gave us Moses. Remember old Moses, that earlier savior? And old Pharaoh, how that story went. Who Pharaoh, like Herod, was found lacking when he heard that plea, let my people go. He couldn't answer it. He was like Herod, shaking in his boots Remember Moses floating in that homemade boat, waterproof with, pit, <clears throat> with pitch and tar? He could have drowned, but he didn't. He went on to lead God's children out of slavery to a better land. So Mary and Joseph and that growing child Jesus stayed down there in Egypt until the coast was clear, and then they headed back to Nazareth. This is the gospel in a nutshell. God is at God's best when things seem darkest. I like what uh, 
what Sharon said today, in order to understand light, you have to know about darkness too. God is at God's best when things seem darkness. The most unfair, the most despairing, always look for God when a saving is needed. For that, dear people, is what God is all about. The name Jesus literally means to deliver, to save, to rescue. That's where the word comes from. Well, Christmas has come and gone, and uh, I guess that's a relief to some of (laughs) y'all. We never take down our stuff until after after Epiphany when the wise men arrive, but I guess I'll get to it this week. Christmas has come and gone, but that may be the problem in the church. We in the church cannot be satisfied with making Christmas just another holiday, like like a federal three-day weekend. No, something has happened in our world. Light has come into our dark world, and the darkness of fear will not be able to put it out, ever. Ever. A Savior has been born who invites us to put away all our hatreds and our revenges and free us from our fears and our overreactions and save us from ourselves. The sweet little Jesus boy, we did not know who you were then and sometimes we don't know who you are now, but you've come nonetheless to be the light of the world in our midst. Then we remember how that song goes. The world treats you mean, Lord. You remember the next few words? Treats me mean too. A Savior who knows what it's like to be human and endure the struggles of living. A Savior who lives our lives with us. Emmanuel, God with us. Not from some high and lofty place, some castle in the sky, but through a deep and abiding identification and solidarity with the human experience. There's nothing about life that God does not understand. God's care is here for all of us, and the Savior proves it. When the prophet Isaiah said these words, Arise, shine, for your light has come. He knows that God knows where to shine that light. Directly into the darkness of our personal struggles with relationships and health and other matters of the heart. Into the darkness of all our political rivalries that we're so tired of. Into the deep darkness of our planetary ecological crisis. Yes, even into the darkness of the struggles of the United Methodist Church. Wherever it is dark in your world, in my world, in our world, the light is now shining to help us find a way out. That's how God works. So Christmas is more than a date on the calendar. It's the story of a faithful and determined God who wants to give the world a new perspective on things, a new hope in dark times. We needed it then. We need it now. We'll always need it. The contrast could not be clear. The star of Bethlehem with its, its jaw-dropping invitation to come and see in old Herod with his so insecure and fragile world that he's frightened of a little baby. Into that darkness of fear comes a remedy, and it's that remedy that we celebrate today. Into the darkness. Well, how does John say it? In the beginning there was the word And the Word became light, 
And as it says in the opening chapter of that gospel, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness will not overcome it. Period. So we sing, yet in thy dark street shineth the everlasting light. The hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. Well, I can't uh, hear the passage. Where's Rhonda? Where are you? There you are. I can't hear the passage that Rhonda read without thinking, uh, without thinking of the trail of tears. Uh, remember how the story goes? Well, I'll, t- I'll tell you. Uh, <laughs> you can't read uh, or hear this passage without thinking about other people in exile. It's a solemn and quiet experience to walk the grounds of the Red Clay Historical Site outside of Cleveland, Tennessee, near where I came from, or to stand at the memorial wall at Blythe's Ferry where the Indians were loaded onto the boats. The Cherokee Nation held 11 general councils at Red Clay between 1832 and 1837. It was there at Red Clay they learned that the Indian Removal Act of 1830 would be carried out by the military in 1938. At Blast Ferry, the names of over 2,500 heads of household are imprinted on a wall. Numbers from the census suggest that 16,000 Cherokees were marched out of the eastern United States toward Oklahoma, and nearly 4,000 died on the way. They perished on their journey. That's why it's called the Trail of Tears. The 1835 census revealed that the people were as as civilized as those who came to take their place. There were farmers and mechanics and weavers and spinners and business owners, and many were literate and fluent in both Cherokee and English. And it wasn't just the Cherokee. The, the Creek and the Choctaw and the Seminole, uh, all of those folks got caught up in this Indian Removal Act. The final catalyst was when a young boy found a nugget of gold near Dahlonega, Georgia. And once the word got out there might be gold, then people needed that land. So they took it away from the Native Americans. The removal of the Indians was necessary for a final land grab in a series of crooked deals. Now, it's hard to know what all the factors were behind that uh, desire to remove Americans, uh, Indians, but we do know it had something to do with the settlers wanting more. President Andrew Jackson, the Herod of his day, finally persuaded Congress to pass that Indian Removal Act of 1830. Davy Crockett, by the way, who was a Tennessean and later famous here in Texas, he was dead set against this move, but he did not prevail. We cannot say what the outcome of these events were for certain, but this we do know. It brought darkness into the Indian nation. Being herded into exile was devastating to the Indian population and culture. And it's been a lasting generational effect for all those tribes who still to this day, I think, have not recovered. And it remains a stain on the soul of America. Now imagine, we're going to shift gears here a little bit, the same scene centuries earlier. Israel had been invaded and conquered. It was culminated by the destruction of Jerusalem. And somewhere along that, the deposed king and all his court and thousands of workers were sent away from there, from Jerusalem, to the land of Babylon. 
like a great Indian removal act. Not all of them were driven away, but enough were that things changed forever. We call that the Babylonian captivity. Those people were forced to go from their land to another land. The Jewish people suffered greatly in this foreign land. They were faced with cultural pressures in ways that conflicted with their own way of life and faith. The issue for them was how to keep their identity in that strange place and time. By the way, I think that's the issue for the church, isn't it? How do we keep our identity in a society that is increasingly secular and pays no attention to our narrative of faith or our ethics? The psalmist reports it this way, For there our captors ask us for songs. That is, sing us one of those old familiar songs from back home. And our tormentors ask us for mirth. Not only sing us a song, but do it with a smile on your face. Sing us one of those songs of Zion. And the psalmist replies, how can we? How can we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? So into the darkness came the beacon of hope. Arise and shine, your light has come, declared the prophet. A thick darkness has covered you and all the earth, but it'll do it no more. And there will be a homecoming, a gathering of children from Israel, from that alien place back to where they came from. You've been there. We've all been there. When the world is upside down in conflict or grief, when there's a sudden loss of a job or, or health or maybe a friend has gone away, the darkness is real. It's not pretend. But the light is real too. And that gets our attention and it brings us home. Christmas is not about a day in December. It's about seeing the light of God in a world of darkness. And that goes 365 days a year. The holiday of Christmas may be over, but the meaning of Christmas continues in all the darkness we live with. His name shall be called Emmanuel. In him God is with us. Don't be afraid. God illuminates the darkness that seems always to hover around us. A Savior has come. Now, of course, it is still dark out there. Countries assassinate other leaders in other countries. There's always the threat of war. There's a great inequity between the resources of the earth, money and food and that sort of thing. We're not naive. Darkness is around us, and it has its power. But you know what the main power of darkness is? Fear. Darkness makes us afraid of life itself. We trust in God's presence in the world to such a degree that we're not paralyzed by fear. That's what faith is all about. Faith fortifies us to trust and hope in spite of the darkness of the day. So sure, it's cold outside and dark too, as the sermon title said. The weather didn't quite cooperate with that, but <laughs> sure it does get dark out there and in here too. But the light of God's initiative is always gnawing away. <laughs> always gnawing away at the dim and depressing issues that we face. So this is our faith today. God is working in the realms of human history to bring about the values and the wisdom of his kingdom. God is working in our hearts to free us from the fear 
that we have and equip us for service. And you and I are the very ones to whom God will work. We are the peacemakers. We are the climate changers. We are the friends. We are the community builders. We are the neighbors. We are the smiles. We are the handshakes. We are the welcoming spirits. We are the hospitality. We are the kind casserole bakers and the light bulb changers. We are the ones through whom God works in this world. Arise and shine. Your light has come. It has come. God is in the business of transforming the bad into good, straightening out the crooked, leveling the mountains and lifting up the valleys. All through the darkness, even though it is dark, it is not permanent and it is not final. Arise and shine for your light has come. So on this day of Epiphany, really tomorrow's Epiphany, on this Sunday of Epiphany, we remember the arrival of the wise men, the three kings, the astrologers from the east who have come to worship and to acknowledge this good news. No matter how dark and disturbing our world becomes, there is a light sent by God to light our way. Let me say it again. No matter how dark and disturbing our world becomes, there's a light sent by God to light our way. This is the gospel, folks. God has come near, saving us from worry and fear about the outcome of things. No matter what, no matter what, God is with us, calming our fears, reminding us of the trustworthiness of life itself. Jesus is called Emmanuel for a very good reason. We are not alone. Fear not. Do not be anxious. God is with us. Amen.